Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. After grunge blew up in the early 1990s, the walls between mainstream rock and the alternative universe crumbled completely. What other music had been hiding in plain sight? Well, there was goth and industrial and various forms of electronica. And there was all this punk rock. I mean, tons of it. All different flavors, too. There was pop punk, punk funk, hardcore, garage punk, glam punk, queer core, riot girl, ska punk. Punk had always been there waiting to be discovered by a whole new generation. And finally, in the 90s, the time was right. There was Green Day, there was Offspring, there was Rancid, there was also Sublime and No Doubt and 311, No Effects, Pennywise and Bad Religion. Some of these bands were brand new, but others had been doing their thing for quite some time. A lot of the big action seemed to be centered in California, Orange County, the Bay Area. But down in the skate park suburbs of San Diego, something began brewing that would end up being responsible for selling 35 million records. These guys went from zero to worldwide superstars and then almost back to zero again before clawing back. This is part one of the rise and fall and rise of Blink-182. This is the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Said, settle down, settle down, everything is fine Take your eyes off the floor She said, no I'm not, no I'm not, no I'm not alright I lost my head on the door She said, eh, eh, antisocial Eh, eh, antisocial Eh, eh, oh yeah The current version of Blink-182 with She's Out of Her Mind, a single from their 2016 album, California. The band is 33% different than how it started, but uh, we'll get to that. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and we're going to spend a couple of programs tracing how this band came to be, how they were almost destroyed by forces from both within and without, and how they managed to pull it all back together again. Now, we might as well start at the beginning, right? So here we go. It starts with someone getting drunk and expelled from school. No, no, wait, I gotta I got go back further than that. Uh, we have to talk about the guy who is no longer in the group. Tom DeLong is from the San Diego suburb of Poe. When he was a kid, a solid C student, he was a menace on his skateboard, chasing people off sidewalks from one end of the city to the other. For some reason, his parents bought him a trumpet, which he then used to wake the family with a bad rendition of Reveille before dawn. Mark's father was in the Navy, he was born in Washington, D.C., but ended up in San Diego when his father was transferred to the base there. That's when there was a divorce. Mark eventually ended up moving around with his dad while his sister stayed in San Diego with mom. He was scarred by the whole broken family thing, which explains why he discovered groups like The Cure and The Smiths as a teenager. 
A lot of the money he made working at a Little Caesars pizza outlet went to buying CDs. Now we can talk about getting expelled. One night he showed up at his school for a basketball game. He was in grade eight and he was drunk. That got him expelled, which meant he had to register at another school for one semester. And that turned out to be a very good thing. Rancho Bernardo regularly organized Battle of the Bands contests, and Tom had just got a new guitar for his birthday, and he thought he'd give it a whirl. Everyone seems to remember that he performed a solo acoustic song called Who's Gonna Shave Your Back under the name Big Oily Men, and this attracted the attention of a drummer named Scott Rayner, who was in a band that was in the process of falling apart. After meeting at a party later in grade 8, they started messing around with covers by the Misfits and Danzig and Guar. Bass players came and went until they found a guy named Mark Hoppus. Now, he was a couple of years older and had already been in a bunch of bands. Mark's sister was going out with one of Tom's friends. A connection was made, and they started writing songs together. So we have Tom and Scott, both about 15, and Mark, who was 18. Their big thing was practical jokes and punk rock. Using some borrowed gear, the band, which was called Duct Tape and Figure 8 and some other forgotten names, put together a demo tape that they ended up calling Flyswatter. It was a mix of original songs and covers recorded in Scott's bedroom that was distributed on cassette. It led off with a song called Reebok Commercial. It's rough, but here's the real thing. That is super early Blink-182. Actually, they were just called Blink back then, with uh, Mark and Tom and drummer Scott Rayner. The song is called Reebok Commercial, and it's from a cassette demo entitled Flyswatter. Another cassette follow that was also recorded in Scott's bedroom. This one was called Demo Number 2. Very clever. And it sounded like this. The track is Marlboro Man, and again, it's pretty rough, but we start to hear the Blink-182 sound start to come through. Blink-182 from 1993, that's Marlboro Man, from their second demo tape, which they called Demo Number 2. Blink, and remember, that was still their name, started playing gigs around the area. Lunchtime shows at schools, sets at punk clubs, performances at parties that would have them. When they made money, they saved up for more recording time in a proper studio. Meanwhile, a label was formed by Mark's boss at the record store where he worked. He called it Filter Records, which he funded with money from his savings. Now, that would later be an issue when there was a dispute over who actually owned these tapes. Uh, lawyers would have to be called in to sort that one out. But anyway, the result of these sessions was a 15-track indie release called Buddha in January 1994 
that they tore off in about two days. It was basically a collection of everything they had written to that point, but with much better audio quality. This is called Carousel. Blink-182, still performing under the name Blink, with Carousel from their first professional recording, which was a 1998 indie release entitled Buddha. It wasn't much of a seller. I mean, it was a totally independent release with almost zero distribution, but something was happening. Punk bands like The Offspring and Green Day were touring through San Diego on their way to selling tens of millions of albums. Record labels were starting to look for more bands with similar attitudes and similar sounds. So it was just a matter of being in the right place at the right time with the right sound. And it would happen to blink. Just not right away. I'll explain in a second. You're listening to the Ongoing History of New Music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. San Diego wasn't exactly the epicenter of alternative music in 1994. If you wanted to make it big, you'd have to be like Scott Weiland and leave for Los Angeles, which is what he did with the Stone Temple Pilots. But Blink had no choice. They had to stay around. They kept playing shows while everybody still had day jobs. Mark, for example, had a gig where he hauled bags of cement and sand at a construction site all day. But the Buddha album was about to do them a big favor. It came to the attention of an indie label called Cargo. The son of the owner knew about Blink from his skateboard buddies and told his dad he had to sign these guys. So he did on what he called a trial basis. If they could deliver, he'd keep them. If not, well, thanks for coming. The only member of the band who could sign the contract was Mark. He was old enough. Tom wasn't around because he was at work, and Scott was under 18, so he was ineligible. To make matters even more complicated, Scott's family had just moved to Reno, Nevada, so he moved in with his sister in San Diego while the band made the record. Cargo put the group back in the studio, and in six days, the band recorded 16 tracks, often working 12 hours straight. Some were recycled from previous releases, but there were also a few new songs. Most of the tracks were recorded live, which gave a real frantic feel to the album. And part of that manic nature had to do with the fact that they didn't get a lot of sleep. They stayed at a hotel down the street in a room with exactly one king-size bed. So they slept a few hours each night, sleeping three across. The result was an album called Cheshire Cat. The official single was this song, which was written in Tom's parents' garage. It's called M&M's. Released on February 17th, 1995, there's Blink-182, who, remember, still known as Blink at the time, with M&M's, a song from their album called Cheshire Cat. It became a minor hit single in some parts of California. The album itself wasn't exactly a commercial success. I mean, it came out only on cassette at first before transitioning to CD, sold about 3,000 copies. Okay. 
they had to put out the CD because enterprising fans started bootlegging the cassette as CD burns. Cargo put up 10 grand to film a music video, and the band attracted a manager, a guy by the name of Rick DeVoe, who also worked with groups like The Offspring and No Effects and Pennywise, so that was good. And so was this. The band Unwritten Law lent Blink their van for out-of-town gigs. They soon had enough money to buy their own van, which they dubbed the Millennium Falcon, and after their first long tour, they were invited to Australia. But they couldn't afford that either. So the guys in the band Pennywise bought them their tickets. And when they got back, they found that their manager had turned them into a big deal with the snowboard crowd, so that resulted in a trip to Alaska to play for them. Bigger labels started paying attention. Interscope, who was working with No Doubt. MCA, who had labels filled with grunge bands like Nirvana. Epitaph, who had The Offspring and Bad Religion. But in the end, it was MCA who won the bidding war. But Blink's fans gave them an awful lot of grief for signing with a major label. You know, that whole sellout thing. But MCA offered more distribution and more flexibility and cash when it came to recording. Mark and Tom were totally cool with this. Scott? Not so much. He thought that signing with MCA was a very unpunk move. Meanwhile, Scott's issues with living arrangements was a problem. For a while, the band pooled money so he could fly back and forth to Reno, and for a time he was replaced by a dude named Mark Kroll, who was Scott's high school buddy. And there were also problems with the name Blink. Back in June of 1991, an Irish band, who used to go by the name Red and Dino, recorded some new tracks under the name Blink. They ended up with a major deal and started getting attention in the UK through 1993 and 1994. And then Cargo Records the San Diego Blinks indie label, had a chance to sign a distribution deal with EMI to distribute the Irish Blinks records in North America. So for a while, there were two different bands with the same name on the same label. Now, nothing came of that, except that lawyers started getting involved over the name. It was documented that this Irish Blink had started to use the name several months before the San Diego Blink, and they also had music available for sale before the San Diego band. Bottom line is that by any measure, they had first dibs on the name. Clearly, something had to be worked out. So, a deal was struck. Irish Blink could stay Blink, and San Diego Blink would append their name with the number 182. Now, why 182? Well, there are lots of stories, and none of them are true. The most popular said that 182 was the number of times the F-bomb was dropped in the movie Scarface, which is nice, but it's a myth. There was a movie called Turk 182, but if there's a connection, the band says it was unconscious. The truth is, the number means nothing, and if you're going to spell the band's name correctly, you have to do it with a lowercase b, and you have to hyphenate blink and 182. This means that if you want something collectible, look for early versions of the Cheshire Cat album credited to just Blink and not Blink-182. Here's another song from that album. This is Wasting Time. Wasting my time Am I just wasting my time? 
The second single from the Cheshire Cat album, that's Wasting Time. There was plenty of touring behind that album, including time on one of the early editions of the Warp Tour. There were a couple of EPs. One was called They Came to Conquer Uranus. That was on the Cargo label in February of 1996. Then they released a split together with a band called Swindle. But all eyes were on that first record with MCA. Work started around Christmas 1996 and extended into the new year. They were pretty rushed, and they weren't in the best of health. One night, Scott got a little drunk and was convinced he could fly. So he jumped off something and broke both his heels. He was in a wheelchair going to and from sessions and recorded most of his parts while he was still on crutches. Tom had problems getting his vocal parts right. Mark had really screwed up his voice by trying to sing the first single from the song, which was outside his range. So it wasn't exactly the best set of sessions. A release date was set, June 17, 1997. The record was called Dude Ranch. And to be honest, the people at MCA weren't crazy about this record. They didn't get this pop-punk thing. Either be punk or be grunge or stop trying to be all things to all people. And guys, please lose that goofy sense of humor. It is not funny. It doesn't work. And at first, it looked like the label people were right and nothing much happened for the first couple of months. Dude Ranch sold maybe 40,000 copies mostly to people who already knew about the band and those snowboarders and skateboarders who saw ads in magazines and stores. But then in September, a single was promoted to radio stations. This is when things changed, and they changed fast. The song was about a fictional breakup, and I want you to pay very close attention to the vocals. Mark Hoppus is the singer, and like I said, he strained his voice badly during the sessions, which explains why he sounds different on this song from any of the others on the album. And it also explains why Tom ended up singing the chorus when the band played live. This is called Damn It. That is the breakthrough single for Blink-182. It's Damn It from their major label debut album, Dude Ranch. And it turns out that the MCA record people were wrong when it came to pop punk. Within a year, the album had sold half a million copies. There were four singles, two of which didn't do much, but then there was this fourth one. It did okay. There is no such person named Josie. It's actually about a dog owned by Elise Rogers, one of the singers in the ska punk band Dancehall Crashers. The video features actress Alyssa Milano. And if you want to get really geeky, there really is a Sombreros restaurant in San Diego.
the fourth and final single from Blink 182's 1997 album Dude Ranch. It's called Josie. Now, things were looking pretty good at this time, except for one thing. That thing's name was Scott Rayner. Blink's drummer had to go. Now, back to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Scott Rayner had endured a lot with Blink-182. The issues with his family moving away when he was still a minor, breaking his heels, the endless hours in the van. But the thing that really bugged him was the idea that the band had betrayed its punk principles by going with a major label. By 1998, Blink-182 had been going for three straight years with very little time off, and tensions got intense. They started to fight, which led to no one talking to each other. Scott was especially tough to deal with because he had started to drink a lot. At the same time, he was starting to maybe think that he should go to college, even though because of his work with the band, he never even finished high school. Let's just say that the guy was conflicted. Then two things happened. First, it was a lunch at a Wendy's in Ottawa. Mark Hoppus sat down with two members of tour mates, the Aquabats. This was the beginning of a friendship. Second, there was a crisis back home in California. Scott had to fly home to take care of it. While he was out west, Tom and Mark turned to their new buddies in the Aquabats and said, hey, you know, our drummer had to go home. Can we borrow your drummer for a bit? This was a guy named Travis Barker. Okay, now we'd better look at the backstory of this band. The Aquabats were formed in Huntington Beach, California, and they had this shtick of being punk rock superheroes, complete with costumes. There was MC Bat Commander, Crash McLarson, the mysterious KYU, Catboy, and Chainsaw, the Prince of Karate. Travis Barker went by the name the Baron Von Tito, and nobody knows why. Their concerts were crazy, full of theater and special effects and pyro and audience participation. And they're still around, by the way, and they're still a lot of fun. You haven't seen a punk rock show until the Aquabats' Chicken Man comes out. This is a guy in a chicken suit. He comes out to hand fried chicken to the audience. That's his, his job. Travis joined the band in 1997. He was working as a trash collector and was grateful for a chance to play in a band. When Scott Rayner had to go back to California, the Aquabats were really cool in lending Travis to Blink. Legend says that he learned his parts to 20 Blink-182 songs in 45 minutes. So that's pretty impressive. Travis may have been dirt poor, but he was a hell of a drummer. When his mother died, when he was 15, he threw himself into music. He took a lot of lessons, including plenty from a jazz teacher. He also studied funk rhythms and spent hours practicing rudiments. He became really, really good. Scott returned to Blink in May of 1998, but his problems with drinking continued. Something had to give. Even though he agreed to go into rehab, Tom and Mark felt that they had to pull the trigger because Scott's behavior was hurting the band's performances. So Scott was fired. Some stories said he was fired over the phone, but whatever the case is, he was out and Travis was in. For a while, Travis played in both Blink and the Aquabats. And when it came time for Blink-182 to record the next album, Travis was asked to be part of the process, not necessarily as a full-time member, but as a hired musician. Recording started in January of 1999 and proceeded for three months at various California studios. The producer this time was a guy named Jerry Finn, the same guy who was in control when Green Day recorded their Dookie album. He brought in a ton of studio knowledge that was all brand new to the band. And pop punk had become a real thing with fans. So Blink had this right sound and this right attitude at exactly the right time. Nursery rhymes on steroids. That's how Tom described the songs in the album that was once known as Turn Your Head and Cough. But somehow it would end up being retitled 
enema of the state. I took her out. It was a Friday night. I walk alone to get the feeling right. We started making out, and she took off my pants. But then I turned on the TV, and that's about the time she walked away from me. Nobody likes you when you're 23. And I saw more of these my TV shows. What the hell is ADD? My friends say I should act my age. What's my age again? What's my age again? Blink-182 with What's My Age Again, the first single from Enema of the State, released on June 1st, 1999. A couple things about that song. First of all, its original title was Peter Pan Complex. The band really liked the name, but the label thought the reference was too obscure. Second, the song was something of a pop radio hit. It never got any higher than number 58, but that was still pretty good for a punk band. In the UK, though, it got all the way to number 17. Third, the video is famous for the band running around L.A. naked. They were wearing flesh-colored Speedos the whole time, but they weren't happy with the reputation that gave them. They wanted to leave nudity to the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and they did not want to be viewed as a joke band. So they vowed to take more creative control when it came to their public image. And fourth, What's My Age Again was part of an experiment in digital distribution. Using a long-gone digital company called A to B Music, 30-second clips of that song and two others were available to anyone online in 1999. Pretty radical stuff back then. Video channels grabbed the clip, and they played it over and over and over again. And when a second clip was made available, they went nuts over this song, too. All the small things. Tom DeLong wrote that for his girlfriend Jennifer. It was deliberately written to be catchy and therefore a hit, and it worked. The single sold more than 500,000 copies in the U.S. through 2000. It was a top 40 hit, reaching number six in America. It hit number two in the U.K. and also sold half a million copies there. It also reached the top 10 in Canada, Italy, New Zealand, Australia, and the top 20 in half a dozen other countries. That song was a big reason that Enema of the State would go on to sell more than 15 million copies globally. Turns out there was a stupidly huge market for adolescent, sophomore, goofy pop punk. And there was yet another single, but this one was very, very serious. Mark Hoppus remembered how lonely he got on tour. The other guys in the band had girlfriends. Mark was single, so even though when he got home from the tour, he'd still be really lonely. As he doodled lyrics, ideas of depression and suicide started forming. And much of that has to do with the suicide letter he read in some teen magazine. It showed the serious side of Blake, and it really hit a nerve. Was mine, I didn't think enough I'm too depressed 
Blink-182 and Adam's Song. There's a big controversy with that song, linked with the Columbine murders. Greg Barnes was a student at Columbine that survived the rampage, but some of his friends did not. And when Greg decided to take his own life, he left that song on repeat on his stereo in the garage where he hanged himself. Now, it's supposed to be an anti-suicide song. I mean, if you got back into how the song was composed, it's very clear. But some people chose to interpret it differently. The good news is that the band received a lot of mail from teens who said the song helped them decide not to take their own lives. We can't finish talking about this record without mentioning the porn star connection. The woman on the cover of Enema of the State is Janine Lindemuller. She was a major porn star at the time. The band claimed they had no idea who she was. They were saying they were given a stack of photos and asked to pick one for the model that would be on the front of the record. They wanted a sexy nurse to go with the title Enema of the State, and they just happened to pick her. Here's some additional trivia. There are three different versions of this cover photo, but the differences are really, really subtle. The first features a red cross on Linda Mueller's hat and Blink-182 spelled with a capital B. Well, the band didn't like that because Blink is supposed to be spelled with a lowercase b, so it was changed and that version was released. But then the American Red Cross saw the album and said, uh, using the Red Cross symbol in any other way than to signify the world of the real Red Cross is a violation of the Geneva Convention. So the album had to be issued a third time, this time with the cross completely removed. The look ahead to part two is next. More of the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. By the time Blink-182 rolled into the 21st century, things were really, really good. They were one of the biggest alt-rock bands in the world. But how long could they keep it together? There had already been at least one crisis period where everybody was fighting. Could that happen again? And what about the plane crash? Those are just some of the things that we'll talk about as we get into part two and three of the rise and fall of Blink-182. Until then, reach me at alan at alancross.ca. You can also check my website, which is ajournalofmusicalthings.com. That's where you can subscribe to the free daily newsletter, which, if I may say so, is very helpful. And I'm all over Facebook and Twitter and Google Plus and Instagram. There's no reason we can't connect. Tactical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the ongoing history of new music, the podcast edition with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast at iTunes and through Google Play. 